most of the people that are in the investment world are high achieving and they're competitive and they don't ever want to fail. But the realistic answer is that you will. In fact, if you have a batting average of over 500, but you over rotate on the amount of dollars that you put into winners versus losers, you'll be a world class investor for your whole career. Hi, I'm Jeremy Goldman, and this is Future Proof. To figure out what direction society is going, every now and then we like to check in with our friends in the investment space. After all, they're highly motivated to get the future right. That's why I wanted to talk to Gene France, a leading investor in cybersecurity and enterprise tech and general partner at Capital G, the private equity firm owned by Google parent Alphabet. Gene's track record includes backing some of the most significant tech companies of the past decade, including CrowdStrike, Zscaler, and Freshworks. Collectively, his investments at Capital G have achieved nine major exits, including four IPOs, and are worth over $125 billion. I'm excited to talk to Gene about the state of private equity investing and what the future holds. So let's jump right in. So uh, Gene, welcome to Future Proof. Thank you very much. Great to be here. I know I'll have a bunch of this in the intro, but I always like to ask people from their own perspective, who are you and what do you do on a day-to-day basis? Sure. Yeah. I, I promise to keep it mercifully brief. Um, so my name is Gene France. I'm a general partner at Capital G, which is Alphabet's growth equity investment fund. We're about nine years old and focus on investing for financial return, with the strategy to try to leverage Google and Alphabet every way we can to both be smart about the investments we make and then also to bring Google into companies in ways that's really additive uh, to them and their growth and journey and development. It's interesting to me, obviously, and I'm sure a lot of uh, listeners, the fact where you're kind of positioned within Alphabet and how you kind of fit in within that ecosystem. And I told somebody I was going to be speaking to you and, and they fed me a question, so I can't take credit for this one. But how does your investment philosophy, how is it different by virtue of the Alphabet Association versus if, if you were in a more standard shop, let's say? Yeah, that's a great question. As far as our mission and what we're trying to accomplish, it would be no different than any other big growth equity investment firm. It's really financial return and doing a great job investing the money that we're given uh, with that in mind. Where it's interesting and where we are quite different is on the strategy of how to do that best. And that's where we really lean into Google and Alphabet to look for insights and perspectives that Alphabet and Google can bring to the companies that we're evaluating for investment and help us do a superior job in evaluating companies as a result of that body of knowledge. And then, of course, even more importantly, after we invest, what we can do differently from most other private equity firms and growth equity investment firms uh, is is um, access perspectives, partnerships, uh, information that Alpha and Google have that are really helpful and different for these companies from what they can get from their other great investors. And so for a lot of us that came from the private equity world, what got us excited is that partnership with Google is really differentiated and something that wasn't available in the market uh, to, to companies, startup companies that were taking uh, growth equity. So building on that, I'm wondering how does a VC know how to place bets? And what are some of the key criteria you look for when 
trying to see what to get behind, you know, is it, and is there some kind of, there's a lot of questions kind of all wrapped up into one, but you know, like, is there some type of formula where you're kind of ranking, uh, you know, leadership versus just belief in that a particular sector or particular idea and how defensible it is? What are some of the criteria? Yeah. So I would point to three dimensions that we pay a lot of attention to and care about. And there isn't a formula as to what percentage of a decision ought to come from each of these three buckets, because it varies and you see strengths and weaknesses that, that can offset. But for us, where we start is, is the market attractive and is it a, a market that's big and growing? Um, and does it have properties that favor newly emerging growth companies? So a classic example would be uh, in cybersecurity where the, the, the problems are so dynamic, the challenges that are, are represented by attackers are so dynamic that there's this constant need for new innovation to be able to address that market. And it's obviously very large and growing. And so that would just, again, just one example, but a large and growing market is a great place to start. Second variable is, can we find companies that, that either have when we invest in them or we can clearly underwrite that they will become great businesses. So you have a big market, growing market, but it's hard to build a great business. We're, we like big growing markets where you can build a great business. And that again, that can either be an evidence in the company that we invest in, or you can look and see that there are other companies that have gone before it that have done a great job and built an attractive business. And we can talk in more detail about what that means specifically, but that's the big, broad second bucket. The third bucket, of course, is a great management team, a great founder, a great CEO who we have confidence can lead and grow an organization to really attack that problem in a way that's compelling and do a great job and be competitively differentiated. So if we can find things that in varying degrees have all three of those present, that's a great formula for, for us to invest and I would say for the industry at large. Yeah. And I, I think that what's interesting also about that is, of course, as a lot of people who don't follow this industry to the same extent that I do or that you do, uh, is that there's different subject matter expertise within any particular company that's making these investments, right? So you might very well come across a company where it's a really good investment, but it might just not be the right investment for you. Yeah. I think that's a great point. And I think um, having insight, experience, and perspective is really important to make informed investment decisions. Again, we feel like Google brings us real advantage there because we do have a lot we can lean on by way of expertise to bring into specific situations to help us underwrite those sorts of decisions. So again, for us, an advantage, we think. But, but by and large, access to real expertise and understanding is totally important. I agree with that. And I, not to say it's at all the same thing, but about a decade ago, I was uh, working on a startup for Unilever Ventures. And I was thinking, as I was talking to the investment arm, doesn't it make sense for us to find situations where our heft and everything that we can bring to the table is going to add some value to this particular deal? And if not, it's it's like, well, we don't have any inherent advantage over other people because we're not looking at things uh, that are going to be synergistic. Yeah, no, that's right. And I think um, I would say for us, there isn't anything limiting necessarily about what Google does or doesn't do in terms of what we can look at. 
we choose to focus on areas where we think Google can bring us advantage because we have that to work with. And so as we prioritize things, that's that's a good uh, just consideration to think hard about. But but uh, I, I, I agree with what you said. How much emotion is ideal when investing in startups? Should it be all pragmatic balance sheet analysis or, you know, I know, I know you talked about other factors like leadership, but I feel like it's interesting because some of those things are judgment calls where you might look at the leaders and feel a certain way about them. Somebody else might look at it and read their temperament in an entirely different way. So, yeah. so I'm just wondering, like, is that human element, uh, yeah. the things that are hard to quantify important? I think it's a great question. I might, uh, I probably would shy away from the word emotion and would say the less, the better as far as emotion uh, contributing to a decision. I think there's absolutely uh, soft skills uh, and judgment around assessing a management team that absolutely is important. And so there's an important role for instinct to play, but I, I shy away from using the word emotion as a synonym for that and might instead say more just instinct and judgment and relying on the non-analyzable uh, considerations absolutely important. It seems like this is another thing that I thought is interesting and just like a general trend that I'm noticing uh, as I've been kind of following this industry. But it seems like companies used to raise as little money as they needed to continue. And now we're seeing greater and greater sums of money going into rounds. I mean, is there such a thing as raising too much money if you're a particular company? And is there any downside? Yeah, I, I think uh, that the dynamic you're pointing out absolutely is a real thing. I think that that's been a real manifestation of the abundance of the supply of capital over the last six, seven, eight years with so much money being available on very attractive terms. It's very hard for companies not to take that when uh, when it's so plentiful. So I think that that there's been a lot of of what we could say is overfunding, and I would say largely at cause for that would be the venture firms that have raised a lot of money. <laughs> um, and of course, market valuations that have been very robust and, and all the rest. I think that, that a company can absolutely raise too much money. And it's interesting because when you see a company confronted with the opportunity to raise a bunch more money at a really attractive valuation, it's very hard not to do that because all that does is give us options. All it does is give us runway. All it does is give us um, more flexibility. To, to grow our business, the truth is there's a very real cultural impact on a company on how much money it raises. And I've never seen the company that can raise a very large war chest and remain very disciplined about how it spends that money. Inevitably, there's just a lot of pressure to put it to work. And that does have a big impact on company culture that can't really be corrected for once you've developed and grown with that overlay. There's one company in particular that as you were saying that it got me thinking a little bit about WeWork. I just think that that was an example of something where the market opportunity was not necessarily in line with how much was being raised. So then all of a sudden, a lot of initiatives start to get greenlit in order to arguably figure out how are we going to get the revenue to justify this insane valuation. That's right. And then it starts to almost inform your strategy in a negative way. That's right. Yeah, I think that's a great example. And that obviously is a high profile one that many are familiar with. But you can go down a very long list of companies that have raised 
an immense amount of money, you know, arguably more than they needed and, and had a similar experience in measures. And sometimes that can land okay and companies can succeed and do well, but generally it, it has high impact on culture in a way that you may not like later on down the road. You also raised this important point, which is that it's changed a little bit where kind of some of the point of the money seems almost like, well, it'll give you enough runway to also get everybody else out of the way and or discourage people uh, like new market entrants. And if you can do enough of that, then you can hopefully become the leader in a shorter time period. At least that's the way that I kind of read it. Yeah, I think there have absolutely been uh, cases of, of what you're describing, and that's been a thing. Again, that strikes me as not a great reason to raise a lot of money, right? I'm going to be the spoiler in this market is not <laughs> uh, not a very laudable objective necessarily. And I think, you know, going back to first principles, which is I know how to invest this money and get an attractive return on it. And we can define over what time period that should be. We can define how to measure that. But it's really with an eye toward building a great company and enabling that is is much more, I think, an enduring strategy that ought to be durable in good times and bad. It's interesting how, you know, you're talking about kind of that payback period and thinking a little bit about like what success means from an investment standpoint. So I was thinking a little bit about Freshworks, for instance, which is that that seemed to be like a really good one for you guys. I believe it went up about like 30 percent on opening day. And I think you guys at that time, I don't know what it is now, but like owned about 8%. I know it's had obviously a rockier time as a public company since its IPO. A lot of companies have had a rockier time uh, the last year, but like I still think its market cap is like above three and a half billion when I last looked, which isn't nothing. So, um, So when you think about things like that, how often are you kind of thinking, well, this is something that's going to launch well and it's going to make money for the company, you know, in the short term yeah. versus this is something that the public markets are going to understand and be able to support, let's say, after it IPOs. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's a great example. So Girish Mathrabutham, who's the founder and CEO of that company, um, had a vision, you know, and we got involved, I guess it would have been eight years ago now. Um, and he's been totally consistent and built a company with an ethos around what it is that he held out as first principles. And capital was always an enabler for him and for the company. It was never about the money. And um, he's very consistently built the company. He's built a wonderful culture and a great company that competes in enormous markets. And he has a huge amount of growth potential ahead. And obviously, execution is always important. It's always tricky. He's done a marvelous job leading the company in that regard. And so it's true, the company went public. It had, you know, and this was, it was, of course, a product of what we've seen over the last year and a half of capital markets where IPO markets are very um, uh, uh, robust. Companies go public, they trade really well, and then they, they've traded off, of course, in the last three months, as has the market at large. Um, but from our perspective as a shareholder, we're patient, we're not in any hurry, we like what the company's doing. Um, we think the strategy is as good as it's ever been. We think the market's as attractive as it's ever been. And if it, it may take us longer to get there in terms of the share price that we think makes sense for the company's opportunity. But we can be patient and not be in a hurry and, and are more than happy to stay on the ride for an indefinite period of time as the company earns its way back into you know, the, the valuation that, um, that it deserves. 
I know that there are a lot of really interesting deals that you've been a part of, you know, like Z Z scale and CrowdStrike and FanDuel. And it's one thing that is always interesting to me when you see pundits make predictions uh, on TV, they never have their batting averages below them. You know, how often is somebody just making big bets and they never really pan out? And I'm thinking to some extent from an investment standpoint, that's also true, which is that you have these really big ones but nobody ever necessarily keeps track of here are the ones that just did insanely poorly, not for you, but for everybody sure. uh, in this industry. This is true. And I mean, as a general rule of thumb, how many hits do you need to offset the investments that don't ultimately pay off? Uh, yeah, kind of a ratio. Yeah, that's a great question. I would say we don't necessarily operate with it with a specific ratio. We're not early stage, so we definitely are looking for more consistency of return. But if we have, you know, out of 10 companies, um, you know, three do incredibly well, uh, maybe, you know, six or seven, uh, do, uh, fine to good. And we maybe have a couple that don't do well at all or struggle. That might be a pretty good, uh, formulation to try to get to the two and a half to three times our money target that investors like us think about. It's not sort of one or two companies makes the portfolio. It'd be, you know, in the middle of the bell curve is most of the companies. And then we've got a couple that are losers and struggle. And then we've got a couple that are big winners. And I think that in the VC world, you're not really just trying to be uh, somebody who's reliably hitting doubles. You know, it's it's like the, the whole nature of the whole entire business is to be going for these home runs or, you know, three three run home runs even and accept the fact that you will strike out a, a decent portion of the time. And it's hard to really rock failure as fundamental to your business model, even though for all of us it is. And, you know, most of the people that are in the investment world are high achieving and they're competitive and they want to do really well and they don't ever want to fail. But the, the realistic answer is that you will from time to time. In fact, you know, if you have a batting average of over 500, but you over-rotate on the amount of dollars that you put into winners versus losers, you'll be a world-class investor for your whole career. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it, that actually ties into something else that I wanted to ask you is how you work to become a better, essentially, predictor of the future on an ongoing basis. So if you have a particular sector or subsector that you expect it to grow at a certain rate and then actually, you know, you're off by a decent amount or if a particular investment that you're more sure of than most just does not work out. How do you kind of refine in your head? Well, this is what I learned from that. This is what I take going forward. You know, it's it's so hard and one has to have so much humility in this business because predicting future is really an impossible task. And, you know, we tend to think a little bit more in probabilities where we can feel like, okay, there's a pretty reasonable probability that this all comes in for a landing as far as the market company and the opportunity and the sort of time frame, give or take, that we think it will. And if it doesn't, the plan B actually doesn't look too bad. Where we, Maybe we've developed a really interesting technology that we know will be of strategic interest to some of these other companies and that will have real value to others if, we're aren't, if we aren't able to capitalize it in the way that we think. And so it's, I would say, more of that kind of scenario planning with you know, ranges of probabilities around it that gets us comfortable. But, you know, for anyone to say this one thing is going to happen is folly. It just doesn't, you know, the, the world's far too complicated to, 
really uh, allow for that. Yeah, too many uh, variables. One, one thing that's interesting to me that I've noticed also over the last few years that Lee messes to some extent with the average VC's ability to predict here's what's going to work is I've just seen that the, the role has changed to be a little bit more of like a brand ambassador or cheerleader for investments. Um, and maybe that's just something I've noticed more and it was always the case, but you have investors getting out there singing the praises of their investments a little bit more public facing, which then makes me think, well, does that throw off somebody's radar in terms of is this actually going to work out? Because you're naturally saying something public facing that might very well impact uh, the way you're thinking about that investment. Yeah, that's a great question. I think uh, definitely most everyone in our industry is promotional of the companies that they're invested in. and that's generally viewed as being supportive of their success, trying to get them attention, you know, fighting for, for uh, mind share from, from people that matter. And CEOs certainly appreciate that when they have that kind of support from, from their investor board members. I think at the same time, you need a very robust wall between that promotional side of your brain and the sort of internal conversation with a founder and with a management team on how the company's doing and bringing a lot of realism to that discussion. And optimism certainly is a part of that also. But, you know, it, it, being an internal cheerleader doesn't help the company at all. You want to really try to be a, a good advisor to the CEO, which sometimes means telling them things that they don't necessarily want to hear in, in that moment. But you're trying to be uh, a great partner, not just a cheerleader internally, even though the external role is primarily. Uh, cheerleading orientation. And then I was kind of thinking, what are some industries that you believe are ripe for disruption and maybe seeing more dollars flow to them in the future? Are there any particular sectors that you think are just very interesting uh, in general these days? Yeah. You know, we touched on cybersecurity earlier. I think there has been a lot of disruption there. There continues to be a huge amount of opportunity there. And there are very uh, large, successful legacy companies that have been around for decades that continue to have a great business. And even if they're, if they're, uh, the world has moved well past what it was they were trying to serve. And, and so companies that are disrupting cybersecurity, we continue to feel like will be great opportunity and there's a lot to do there. Um, I think all over enterprise, particularly with an eye toward data and infrastructure, there's a lot of room for innovation there. The world now is totally different than it would have been a decade ago or 15 years ago. And there are a lot of companies that are emerging to capitalize on that. And, um, and so that will be another area of, of great innovation. And then, of course, fintech globally has seen tremendous innovation, but we're still very much early days. And that's a space that where legacy is particularly sticky there's a lot of regulation and other uh, barriers that make that more difficult. But over time, we'll see a lot of disruption in fintech continue and, and a lot of money made for investors there. And I think maybe just to leave with something that uh, is a little bit broader, a lot of people are obviously concerned from an economic standpoint now. Uh, and I know that there's not necessarily a direct correlation between money drying up directly in relation to that. I mean, what do you think actually winds up happening to investments at large, do they slow down, uh, you know, 
or do you know, wise investors just notice that there are probably opportunities for disruption with all of the craziness and uncertainty out there right now? Well, I think um, private markets have absolutely slowed down and you know, companies are trying hard not to come test the market now for raising capital just because there's so much uncertainty and investors are squeamish. And so, you know, the, the, the volume of companies looking to raise money has fallen dramatically, you know, over the last couple of months, few months. You know, that will probably continue, I imagine, through the summer and then we'll get out toward the end of the year and there will be a number of good companies that will need to raise money. And, and so they'll come at that point in time or they'll wait until they raise money and then come. And they will get funded. There are investors that are, you know, there's obviously still lots of, of supply of capital interested in making good investments and, and people will want to put that money to work. Investors will want to put that money to work. And so you will see investments continue, but it'll be a while before we're back to 2021 levels of, of transaction. It's still a fun area to follow, even, you know, with the, the slowdowns. A lot of really good advice for people just in terms of how, uh, you know, capital thinks, uh, to, for lack of a better term. And I think this is going to be a really interesting conversation for uh, listeners. So, Gene, you know, thank you so much for making the time. My pleasure. Glad, it was, uh, glad to do it and uh, good luck. Thanks again to Gene for making the time. I hope you found this conversation as interesting as I did. If you'd like what you just heard and this is your first time here, be sure to subscribe. Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Stitcher, the choice is yours. And if you're a longtime listener, please remember to rate and review Future Proof as that's the number one way we get the show in front of people just like you. Got a burning question you uncovered on a future episode? Go to futureproofshow.com to submit. Special thanks this week to producer Jason Stack, Once again, I'm Jeremy Goldman, and you've been listening to Future Proof.